compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church, and now, here's Pastor Stephen Alby. I am grateful for each and every one of you to be here. It's funny that um, the passage that the Lord put on my heart many, many weeks ago for this service actually comes from Luke 15. It's a little bit later on, but I love how Luke 15 starts off with the idea that if it just one sinner repents, then there's a whole celebration. And I'm realizing that uh, as long as I am here, um, there is one sinner present. And hopefully um, each day you'll see me repent and then you'll celebrate. So see, this works. It works out really, really well. Um, as you guys know, today is indeed New Year's Eve, and it's hard to believe that we just have mere hours left in 2017. Does anybody else think that that's crazy? Has 2017 gone by really fast for other people? I see some, some nods. It went by super fast for me. And I don't know about you, but do you set goals at the beginning of each year? Write out a list of all the things that you want to accomplish. Maybe it's having, uh, you know, getting to a certain weight. Maybe it's uh, reading a certain amount. And uh, I had this super long list. I had about 30 things on my list that I wanted to do. And as of today, I have accomplished four of those things. And it's amazing to me because I look at all these things that I wanted to do and all these things, like I had this passion and fire to do at the beginning of the year, and now all of my time just feels like it's gone from this year. Although it makes it easy because next year I don't have to work too hard on creating a new list. I just have to transfer a whole bunch of stuff over, which makes life a little easier. But what I love about New Year's is that it's always this conscious reminder that we get a fresh start. It's a conscious reminder that maybe this last year could have been the best year of your life, but it could have been the worst year of your life. This last year could have been a time of incredible growth and joy, or maybe it was more like a rut. Maybe it felt like your spiritual life has has grown a little stale, and maybe you're not sure why. Now today, you could be tired and worn out from life, or you're in the midst of a difficult season, and maybe God feels really close to you right now, or maybe he feels really far away, and my hope is, is that through this story, you will see something in something fresh. And my hope is that this isn't just something that is a story that you've heard many, many times before. My hope is that you hear something in a familiar story new today. Because this is a story about second chances. This is a story about fresh starts. This is a story about sinners and self-righteousness, and it's a story about a recklessly generous God. We're going to be in Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. And if you want to turn there, it's, gonna, uh, it's in your Bibles, of course. We didn't remove it. Um, but it's also going to be in your notes, and it's going to be on the screen. Um, and if you don't have a Bible to call your own, I always try to remind you guys of this. If you don't have a Bible to call your own, either take that one in the pew in front of you or come to us, and we'd love to give you one. Um, we believe that everybody should have access to God's Word without having to rely on data and phones, and then that way you don't have to worry if your battery's charged, you just open the book and you can read it. So seriously, talk to me, talk to Pastor Kurt. We would love to give you a Bible if you don't have one. So while you turn there and while you get settled, let me set the scene. Jesus is teaching to a crowd where there are two distinct groups of people present. And it's pretty obvious which group is which. Standing about as close to Jesus as they can get, sitting very, very close, probably in not the nicest of clothing, are what we're going to refer to as the sinners of this group. And they're referred to this way in scripture. I'm not just being mean, but we're going to call them the sinners. These are the downcast of society. These are the people who have 
been very aware of their need before God, and they are very aware of their standing before people. But the thing is, with this Jesus who's come along, this teacher, they've been hearing something new. And they've been experiencing something from this man that they've never experienced before. And you can tell, like, they're hanging on his every word. And they're sitting really, really close to him so that they won't miss anything. And they are really hoping to hear something from him that's different from what they've been told before. Now, the other group that's present here is going to be the Pharisees and the scribes. They're probably standing about as far away from Jesus as they can. No offense to those of you sitting in the back row. Um, But they are probably sitting there because they don't really care what Jesus is saying. They're really more, like, they're more concerned about what they can catch him doing. And they're more concerned about what, if they can trap him in a lie or if they can discredit his teaching somehow. They're very aware of their standing in society and they don't believe anything is wrong. And they believe that this teacher is teaching something that is not just wrong, but it's contrary to what they believe God has told them. They're not there to learn, they're just there to scrutinize. Now as we read the story together, remember these two groups. Remember that each of these groups is going to come from a completely different background, and each of these groups is going to interpret what Jesus is saying differently. And I think it's interesting too, because both of these groups actually believe that the other group is what's wrong with the world. The Pharisees believe that the sinners just need to stop sinning, they need to sin less, and they need to work more. And then the sinners, on the other hand, think that the Pharisees need to judge less and love more. You'll notice that if either one did what the other thought they should, then life would be good for that, for that group. And both are going to relate to different parts of this story. So let's jump in, starting in verse 11 of chapter 15. And he, Jesus, said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And we're going to stop right there. Now, know what you're thinking. This is going to be a really long sermon if he only takes half a verse at a time. That's not what I'm going to do. But I need to stop at this point because we can't really understand the significance of what just happened here unless you know a little bit more of first century Hebrew society. What this son did... Sounds pretty shocking to our ears now, but like, I want to set this, this scene up for you a little bit more. In this culture, the father's rule in the household was law, and nothing went against the father's rule. To show him any disrespect would be grounds for excommunication from the family, or in some, like, some shame and public punishment in a sense. And now for, for this younger son who had absolutely no rights in the family compared to his older son and definitely compared to his father, he just came up to his dad and said this, Father, I am sick and tired of waiting for you to die so that I can have your stuff. Would you just give it to me now? Now let that sink in for just a second. Those of you who are parents, what would happen if your child came up to you and said that? How would you feel? How disrespected would you feel? that your child just came up to you and said, in essence, I wish you were dead so that I can have your stuff. Give me my inheritance now so I can go and just do what I want. Here's what should have happened, and here's what everyone in in this audience, both groups would have expected this to happen. First of all, the father would say no, pretty emphatically. Then he would take his son out into the middle of the street so that everybody in the entire city could see this, He would put him on his knees and he would take his hand open-handed and he would smack him across the face. This would be the ultimate act of shame and the ultimate act of disrespect toward his son. Then, if that weren't enough, everyone knows that the son just did something horrible. They don't even care what it was, but they know it was enough for the father to shame him publicly. 
then the family would actually have a funeral for the son. The family would treat the son forevermore as a corpse. He would not be allowed to look his father in the eye anymore. And he would be forever shamed by everybody else. The son's inheritance would be completely gone. And everyone in the, in the crowd is probably thinking, okay, we know what's going to happen next. So let's see if that's actually what Jesus says next in the story. Jesus continues, he says, and he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country and there squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. Okay, at this point, both sides are probably thinking to themselves, oh, okay, we know what kind of story this is. That father acted really stupidly. The son acted really stupidly. And this is a, this is a moral story. You see, this is going to be a moral tale about a foolish son who messed up his life and now has to deal with the consequences. Or maybe they're thinking, you know, oh, the, the father didn't do what he was supposed to do. The father just gave him all of his property. So God paid him back by having all of his property gone having his son get rid of his property and destroy it. And since the father didn't take it into his own hand to punish the son, maybe God is now punishing the son. I mean, look at this. A famine arose in the country. A famine isn't something that humans cause. It's something God causes. So they're thinking, oh, okay. The son is not only starving, but he's ceremonially and physically unclean. He's about as unclean as anyone gets. This man is tending ceremoniously unclean animals. He probably smells horrible, he's disgraced, and now he's broke and starving. These stories were actually a very common way for the Pharisees to teach moral law. They would share a story with you and then they would, they would show you that, oh, if, if people don't punish you or if, if you break the law and you don't experience any kind of punishment, then God will punish you. It was a way for them to, to paint God as this kind of cosmic um, punisher of people, this, this angry king that would dole out punishment. Like if you did anything, he would strike you down with a lightning bolt. And now maybe this description of God is hitting a little close to home for some of us. Maybe this is a description of God many of us have as well. But it's interesting because when you think about how moral stories go, a lot of them go kind of the way that the people in the audience think this one's going right now. They think, oh, if you do wrong, you get punished, whether by people or by God. If you fail to live up to the standards of society, you'll get yours, regardless of whether or not we feel like we've seen that punishment now. And even today, we hear the stories that people describe as karma, even though it's different from the Buddhist term, but it's that idea that if you do wrong and seem to get away with it, then the universe will pay you back, right? What goes around comes around. All of us understand this kind of idea. It's a moral story. I think it's interesting because as I picture the story, the Pharisees are laughing and the sinners are looking down as they both think, well, maybe this Jesus... It's just like all the other teachers after all. Maybe this Jesus is just about to tell a story that we've all heard before. Maybe he's not so different from the Pharisees. Jesus continues, he says, But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose, and he came to his father. And every sinner has this moment of clarity when they realize what they've done and the consequences of those actions. 
The text doesn't go into much detail here, but I don't imagine the scene as being as matter-of-fact as it comes across. I don't know about you guys, but when I've wronged somebody and I go through that, that moral wrestling of like whether or not I should go to them, it's not just like, oh, I'm just going to go up and I'm going to go to this person and I'm going to make, you know, I'm going to script out what I'm going to say and I'm going to go to them. No, it's, it's a little bit more difficult than that. And I feel like, again, the, the text doesn't tell us exactly, but I really feel like as we look at the story that the son probably isn't just, he didn't just come up with this idea on his own. It probably took a little while. He probably wrestled with himself. He probably fought. He was probably angry. Because think about this. He understood that if he went back, it would not go well for him. If he went back, according to the culture of the day, his pride would be in shambles and he would have to enter the city even if they let, if they let him in. Now, in this culture, what would happen most likely is that he would get to the gates of the city many miles away probably from where his father lived. And they would sit there and they would determine whether or not he should get in. Most likely they would send a servant to his father and say, hey, your son is back, you know, the one we had a funeral for, the one that we're treating as a corpse. Do you want to see him? Do you want to give him any kind of audience with you? And at this point, it'd be completely up to the father. And if he wanted to see his son, and this is a big if in this culture, a very large if, the son would have to walk through the city disgraced in shambles, wearing whatever was on his back, and he would have to slowly go up to, sit, to see his father. His father would sit in this place of honor, and as the son walked through, he would be smelling like pig, he'd be disgraced, broke, and everyone would heap condemnation upon him. This is just how a shame and honor culture works. As he walked through, people would make sure he knew how far he had fallen. People would throw things at him, they would spit upon him, they would... You know, as if his disgrace wasn't enough, as if his humiliation wasn't great enough for him to come back to his father who he had wronged, knowing full well that all the money and all the inheritance that he got was gone. He wouldn't be coming in like he was some rich man. He would be destitute. And everybody would make sure he knew just how bad he was. Everyone in this culture would know what had happened to him, and they would make sure he knew. They would make sure that he had no false pretenses of what had happened and how great his sin was. Now, the sinners in this story, or the sinners listening to this story, would know this inner dialogue well. I guarantee many of them are probably reminded of someone they had wronged, or how humiliating it would be for them to see their father or their mother again. The anguish that they would feel when they saw the disappointment on their faces. Now, maybe some of us are wrestling with this inner dialogue right now. Maybe some of us are wondering, do I stay in my current situation or do I risk all humiliation and go back to the person that I wronged, beg their forgiveness, and try to right the relationship? Let's see what happens when the son returns home. Jesus continues, well, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned before heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This is where the text takes an incredible turn. This is where the text goes completely against what anybody in the audience would have thought would happen in this story. They thought that this father would heap more condemnation on their son. They thought that this father would act exactly the way they thought their fathers would act. 
And yet he acts completely different. No one would expect the father to act this way. This is Looney Tune level craziness in this culture. This is so outside the realm of possibility that this wasn't even an option for them, even in their wildest dreams, listening to this story. Again, the text doesn't go into a lot of detail except for the sentence, but I love to imagine the scene. And I want to set the scene up a little bit more for you guys. Let's look at the father's actions a little closer. He does four very amazing and very interesting things for this culture. And let's go through them here. The first one is that the father never stopped looking for his son. The father never stopped looking for his son. Look at this. In the text it says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. I don't know about you guys, but I feel like you wouldn't be able to see somebody from a long way off unless you were actively looking for them. Notice how the father, even before this happened, did things that were unexpected. He gave him his property. He let him leave. He chose not to disgrace him. And then even while he was far off, he never stopped looking for him to return. The son never stopped being his son. Notice how the father never stopped, loving, never stopped loving him and looking for him to come home. I think this is absolutely amazing to imagine the father standing there, maybe day after day, looking toward the city gates to see if his son would come home that day. Waiting and pleading with the Lord, maybe lifting him up in prayer and saying, God, whatever it takes, bring him home to me. Day after day, looking out into that city looking out far away to see if he would see that. And maybe every time a traveler came by, maybe his father would get a little hope. But then once his son finally came back, you see that his compassion overcame him. And we see in number, in number two what happens when that passion overcomes the father. We see that the father ran to see his son. The father couldn't wait, could have waited until his son came up to him and then choose to forgive him or not. Like we said, he could have sat in this place of honor and waited for the son to walk toward him and then he could pronounce blessing or he could pronounce cursing upon him. He chose not to do that. He chose to not only walk toward his son, but he chose to run to his son. You see, it was actually humiliating for the father here to run. Because in this, in this day and in this age, older men didn't run. That's something little kids did. And the reason, um, one, is because when, when you're older, your joints don't work as well, and, and running is kind of an awkward thing. But also, he would have been in these long ceremonial robes, and he would have had this long beard, and he would have been this dignified man, almost gliding everywhere. That's how honor was shown. You just you walk with a certain dignity about you. All that dignity is gone when you run. You see, the father would have had to hike up his robes, showing all kinds of ankle and knee, hike him way up, literally to gird his loins, as they say. Hike him all the way up and then run, holding his robes as fast as he could through the city. And this wasn't just like, you know, from here to the front door. This was a distance. And everybody in the, in the town would have seen him. And everybody would have dishonored him and would have shown him incredible disrespect. And I think this is amazing to me because the father decided to run to his son anyway. He knew how humiliated he would be. He knew that any dignity he had would be gone, but he didn't care. And he ran toward his son anyway. He didn't care about what people expected. People expected the father to disown his son. Instead, he gave him his inheritance anyway. People expected the father to have a funeral for his son. Instead, he never stopped hoping he'd return. 
And even here we see that people would have expected him to sit in a place of honor so his son could come to him and instead he came to his son. Let's go on to number three. The father didn't just run to his son. He didn't just stop looking for him. He actually covered his son's shame and guilt. By running to his son and embracing him, the father is saying to everybody around, this is my son. This is my beloved child. And if you were going to hurl insults at him, if you were going to spit upon him, if you were going to disgrace him, then you're going to have to go through me first. You see, the father didn't just like run to meet his son and then hand in hand they walked together or, or next to each other they walked together. He actually took his cloak and covered his son in his cloak. He took probably a very, very nice cloak that an older man would have worn in these days and he didn't care how his son looked, didn't wait for him to clean up first. He just embraced him, wrapped it around him and walked him hand in hand through the city and said, all of that shame, all of that guilt, all of that condemnation that you want to hurl upon my son, you're going to have to hurl on me because this is my son. This is my child. The reason I do this is not because, you know, I have no dignity left. It was because he wanted to protect his child from further condemnation. He takes his son, smelling horrible, physically and ceremonially unclean, and covers him with his cloak and walks him home. Through the entire city, subject to all the shame and all the ridicule that would have come his way and said, I'm doing this because I love my son. And finally, we see another thing that the father does. He actually restores his son completely. The son wanted to be a servant. If you remember, that's what he was going to ask his dad to do. He wanted to become one, of like his, become one of his father's hired people. But again, this is something that, that we don't really understand unless we understand this culture, but servants didn't get shoes. Servants didn't get robes and they didn't get rings. Servants were put into a place of subjugation. Beloved children are brought back in and given full status in the family again. You see, only beloved children get what the son, the younger son got. The father didn't just take his son back, but he restored him back into the family. This means he would have another equal share in the inheritance. I don't want to underemphasize that. He would get another equal share in the inheritance. The father just gave up probably about half to a, you know, a third of his estate to this younger son. And now he is restoring him again and he is allowing him to take advantage of him again by saying you will get another share in the inheritance because you are now back and you are my beloved son. Now some of those listening to this story back then and I'm sure even some of us now are listening to the story and thinking, you know, that's, that's not fair. That's foolish. If somebody took that kind of money from me and then came back, yeah, I would forgive them. Yeah, maybe I would take them back but there is absolutely no way I would give them another share in that inheritance. Because I've seen what they've done with it, right? I've seen how they've squandered this blessing. I've seen how they've taken this. And you know, if you're feeling that way right now, you're not alone. You're not alone at all. Because there's another person who feels this way and feels very strongly this way. We actually see in the rest of the story as we continue. Jesus says this, Now his older son was in the fields. And as he came and draw near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. 
His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him? And the father said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Now, it's very easy to sit here and sympathize with the older son and to say, are you kidding me? This young man, my younger brother, decided to act so recklessly and so foolishly and my father did the unspeakable and gave him all of this stuff. Inheritance that probably would have come to you as the older son. And he gave it to him. And now that he's come back, they're celebrating with him. They're killing the fattened calf, which was probably going to be saved for some kind of big celebration with me. They, I'm pretty sure he actually gave him my robe. And then he made him an equal stand member of the family, which means that I get less inheritance. And he gets more. See, the older son wasn't looking for his brother. Do you notice this? The older son didn't care. The older son was probably happy that his little brother was gone. And he was just out in the fields doing his work. See the contrast between the older son and the father? The father never stopped looking for his son. I don't think the older son ever once looked for his brother. He was just going about his business as usual. He probably resented his brother for getting the inheritance. And maybe his pride or his honor kept him from talking with his father about it. But notice how he reacts here. Instead of being glad that his brother has returned, he's angry. He's upset. Everything that the older son is feeling right now is summed up in how he addresses his father. We'll look at this a little bit closer too because while this seems disrespectful to us, the amount of disrespect shown here for this culture is almost as bad as what the younger son did. For an older son to go up to his father and address him, not his father, not as, you know, with respect and honor, but to say to him, look, I mean, seriously, those of you who have kids right now, if one of them came up to you and said, look, look here, look, dad, I'm going to tell you how it is. I'm going to tell you what really happened here. I am going to tell you how I feel and I'm going to set you straight. Here's all the reasons that I deserve good things from you and you didn't give me a thing. I work so hard for you and you don't even give me the smallest of goats to celebrate with my family. But when this son of yours comes back, you kill the fattened calf for him. That's not fair, dad. Do you hear the disrespect? Do you hear the anger in this older son? He doesn't get it. He is so concerned about what his father can give him that he doesn't care about what his father gave his, his brother. And I love the father's response here. This might be two of the greatest words. And it's actually just one word in the Greek. The word used isn't specifically son when the father addresses his son back. It's actually the word that means my child or like little child. It's this term of endearment. And it's not condescending. At first, when I, when I first heard that, I thought it was being condescending. It's like, oh, little child, you're so mad. No, it's actually this, this feeling of, of love and, embrace, and embracing of him. It's my child. He says, my child, all that I have is yours. You want a party? You want to celebrate right now? There's an awesome party going on right behind me if you would just go in. 
there's an incredible party going on right now, and if that's all you wanted, call your friends. Bring them. They can celebrate too. Goat, you know, goat's cool and all, but we got fat and calf going on here. It's so much better food. And yet the son decides not to go in. He denies his father's grace. And I think it's interesting that the story actually ends before we know what the father or what the son decides. I think it's important that Jesus does this because it's this open-ended question that forces each of us to wrestle with how we would see this. The father entreats his oldest son to put away all of his selfishness and pride and just come home, come inside. And we don't know what he does. The story ends before we find it out. So what does this story mean for us right now? First of all, I want you guys to see that this story is one of the greatest examples of God's reckless grace for each and every one of us, no matter how far away we seem from God. I hope you hear this as good news, no matter which of the sons you identify with. This is good news for each of us, and, when we, celeb- and we should celebrate when any sinner repents. And as we wrap up our look at the story, I actually want to take a little bit of time to show you how the two sons are actually the same. I want to take a little bit of time because many, many times people will take and say the two sons are complete polar opposites of one another. And while they are on some level, I actually do believe that they're very much more the same than um, I previously thought, to be honest. And then I want to talk a little bit about how we identify with these. Because if you're like me, you've probably identified with both of the brothers at one point. So the first way that they are actually the same is that, look at this, they're both ungrateful, but only one of them repents. Both of the brothers are ungrateful, but only one of them repents. The younger son saw his father as a cosmic vending machine. Give me what I want right now. But interestingly, the older son actually sees his father the same way, except he felt like the way to get things out of this vending machine was to put in work and put in duty and put in honor then he might actually get what he wants. Do you see that? He gets so upset that his father never gave him a calf to sell or a goat to celebrate with his friends. He actually saw no value in being a son. In the same way that the younger son saw no value in being a son. Neither of them dis- decided that the relationship with their father was important, but they only wanted what their father can give them. And as I read through this, I wonder how often do we see God in the same way? How often do we look to God, not for what he is, but for what he can give us? It has been said that you could, if you could enjoy all of heaven without God being there, then it's not actually heaven you want. Because to be in heaven is not about rewards and golden streets, but our most sincere desire should be to be in God's presence alone. It should be with God for eternity. That should be what brings us joy. That should be what brings us life. And I think about this even further as I've, I've thought, as I've wrestled through this idea of ungratefulness that I, I wonder, are we grateful even for the things that God has given us now? Because I wonder if the sons were grateful at all for what their father had already given them. Certainly doesn't seem like it. It seems like the younger son only wanted more and the older son only wanted specific things. Neither of them cared that the father had already given them everything. And if we're looking this way to God then something I'd, I'd like to challenge each and every one of you to do is something that I've been doing lately too is, is actually to write out a list of all the blessings and all of the things that the Lord has given you right now. Because the reason I say this is because it's very easy for us to get into this habit and this pattern of saying, well, if, if such and such was different, 
then I'd be joyful. If I had a better job, then I would actually find joy in my life. Or maybe if, if I lived in a different place, or if I just had this relationship, or if this person would change, or if my child would just be this, or whatever that is. Or if I just, you know, if I won the lottery. I mean, whatever it is, we always look for other things to satisfy us when only God can truly satisfy us. And I think this is a really interesting exercise to do where you write down all the blessings that the Lord has given you. And I, I encourage you, if you do this, set aside a good amount of time to do it. And the reason I say that is because once you start writing out blessings, the Lord is going to reveal to you so many more than you even thought you had. And I want you to give adequate time for this. And don't get caught up with something else. Actually write these things out. And then, simple act, bring them before the Lord and say, God, thank you. Thank you for all the things that I have now. Show me how I can use them for your glory as opposed to constantly wanting the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And now number two, the second way that they're both the same that we're going to talk about this morning is that they're actually both shown grace, but only one of them accepts. You see that the younger son was so overwhelmed by his father's grace and throwing him this party, but the older son was so blinded by his anger and bitterness that he won't even walk in the door. This party was actually an act of grace for both the sons. The father comes out and entreats his older son, come on in, celebrate with me. Enjoy the things that I have. Enjoy the life that I can provide for you. And the older son was like, no, this doesn't look the way I wanted it to. The younger son accepted his father's offer of grace. But the older brother was so angry that he would show grace to the worst of sinners that he chose not to come in. And now maybe you sympathize with the younger son, hoping that God is really like this. He is. He is. It's never too late for you to come home, no matter how far away you seem to be. God acts exactly the way the father does here, and even greater. God has never stopped waiting for you to come home. God never stops looking for you. And as soon as you come home, as soon as you turn, the Bible calls that, that turning repentance, as soon as you turn away from your sin, as soon as you turn away and you turn toward the Lord, he will tell you and he will embrace you and he will give you forgiveness. Even if you are unclean in every sense of the word like the younger son was here, God is ready to embrace you, forgive you, and restore you right now if you just come to him. Make 2017 the last year that you've tried to do this on your own. In May 2018, bring about a change in your heart that comes only from believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. It only comes from believing in him and accepting his offer of salvation. I entreat you as the father entreated his older son. But maybe you're like the older son today. I know I've sympathized with him as well. Maybe you think that God is unfair for this radical grace that he's shown to the worst of sinners. Or maybe there's somebody that you know right now who has wronged you and done horrible things to you and honestly, you'd be angry if God forgave them. Or maybe you are angry because God has forgiven them and maybe you're not going to forgive them. And I want to challenge you as well. I want to challenge you to find ways to show God's radical, reckless forgiveness this year. What does that look like? What would it look like for you, maybe even just in your heart or maybe physically, to go to that person and say, I forgive you? I don't care what you have done in the past. I don't even necessarily know if, if this means that we're going to become friends later. It doesn't necessarily have to, but just this idea of giving it up. Giving up your right to seek revenge. Because ultimately, that's what forgiveness is. It's giving up your right to seek recompense and saying, I forgive you. 
I absolve you for everything you've done. I'm going to refuse to let this hurt me any longer. And pray for them. Pray that they would seek the forgiveness of the Lord and that the Lord would forgive them. And who knows? There might be some people in heaven that we had no idea would be there. Because as we see here, by all earthly accounts, it's certainly not good people by society standards that get into heaven. It's forgiven people. It's people like you and me who seem so far away from God that it takes an act of supernatural, reckless grace to bring us home. And if there's no one specific that you need to forgive or that the Lord has put on your heart, I challenge you also to think through this. Is there a a certain type of people or a people group that would anger you if God forgave them? And I ask for you, I won't give you any specifics. It would be different from everybody, but I ask you to bring them before the Lord and ask him to give you a heart like his because ultimately the gospel is this story. The gospel is God's radical, reckless grace for sinners like you and me. And it's that grace for people who seem too far gone and for people who seem like they would never come back. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you are a God who is so recklessly gracious to us. Because Lord, I know I speak for myself, but I imagine I speak for everyone in here when I say we do not deserve even an ounce of your blessing. But God, praise you that you have given us that and so much more. I pray, Lord, for everyone who has come to mind for my friends here that they need to forgive, that you would empower them supernaturally through your spirit to forgive those who seem unforgivable. That, Lord, they would experience the freedom and the joy that comes through forgiveness. I pray for those of us who struggle with certain types of people and wishing that you would just wipe them out rather than forgive them. And I pray, Lord God, that you would change our hearts. You would give us a heart like yours. And I pray, Lord, for the least and the lost and for all those who may be in this room or listening on the live stream, Lord, who seem far away from you, who feel like they could never return to you. And I pray, God, they would know that they can always come back that you would pursue them, that you would show them your reckless grace even in the midst of their lives right now. I pray all this, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Stephen's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.